You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. We're in a series called The Struggle. And in the series, we looked at different areas of our life where people tend to struggle a bit. We've talked about our mental health, we've talked about our schedules, we've talked about setting and maintaining healthy boundaries. And today we're gonna to talk about relationships. And the Bible has a ton to say about relationships. In fact, according to the Bible, God created people. He designed us to be in relationships. If you go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, it opens with this beautiful poetic presentation about God speaking into existence all of the universe. And as God creates things, he says, man, this is good. Then he gets to the creation of people and he says, wow, people, really good. Then in chapter two, we get a deep dive into the creation of people. And it's here that we get the first inkling that something wasn't quite up to God's standards. In Genesis chapter two, verse 18, it says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, talking about Adam, the first human being that he created, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. See, God created us, created Adam, and he saw, man, this is good, but he can't be alone. He needs to be in relationship. It's part of our DNA and our makeup. And so God creates for Adam a person who can come alongside him to do life with him, to serve and work and alongside of him and partner with him in life. This was his wife, Eve, because he needed to be in relationship. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, we get more to the story that all of our relationships are important. The book of Ecclesiastes comes much later in, in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures. And in this text, the wise teacher is looking at all of life and telling us what is beneficial and what is useless. And most of the stuff he finds useless. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, starting in verse seven, this is what the teacher says. Again, I saw vanity or uselessness under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all of his toils and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, the teacher here identifies that when we do life alone, we're missing out on a lot of the benefits of life. But when we're in community with people, family and friends and coworkers, our life is enhanced. Our relationships should make us better. Our family, our friends, our coworkers, our romantic partners, all of these relationships should be important to us and should enhance our lives. And yet we struggle. Sometimes it seems like the things that should come naturally to us that are wired into our DNA are the most difficult for us actually to live out. 
All of us have bad habits that are negatively impacting our relationships. And today, I want us to look at the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter 4, verse 25. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 5, verse 5. And we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus about the things that they needed to remove from their relationships because they were relationship killers. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25, says this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Then in chapter five, it says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in Christ and God. The first relationship killer that the apostle Paul points out to the Ephesian church is this, dishonesty. Now, most of us know that we shouldn't tell lies, but we don't always think about the fact that dishonesty can be both active and passive. See, active dishonesty is when you say untrue things, when you lie to someone else. But passive dishonesty is when you avoid saying true things. And sometimes we do this for good motivation. We want to avoid conflict or don't hurt someone's feelings. But listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We're called to be honest people, to put away all forms of dishonesty active and passive dishonesty, because dishonesty kills relationships. I think the second relationship killer that Paul points out here is unresolved conflict. In verse 26, chapter four, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's a, a organization called the Gottman Institute that studies relationships, especially marriages, and it identifies what they call four horsemen, in other words, four indicators that your relationship is on the wrong path. And this is what they, they identified. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. See, what they found is that sometimes in relationships, we get stuck in these negative cycles. We express our emotions to our partner, to our friend, to our family member, or our spouse. Emotions like frustration, anger, sadness, or worry. And these emotions, rather than being accepted and and dealt with are dismissed or they're negatively reciprocated. So this means that the conflict remains unresolved. 
or the quote-unquote resolution, which isn't really a resolution, that we get in this conflict is criticism or contempt, which is where one partner feels they're superior to the other and can do no wrong, or defensiveness, where we start explaining away why we're doing the things we're doing, or stonewalling, which is where we just ignore it or walk away from the conversation and, and put up walls. And when we have this unresolved or this poorly resolved conflict, we get stuck in this negative cycle. It's like kids on a merry-go-round at a playground. They're spinning and having a good time, and then usually what happens is an older kid will come along and they'll ask him to push him because they want the extra strength, and they'll get spinning and spinning, spinning, and all of a sudden the kids can't get out of the relationship. They're stuck, and there's all this tension, and, and they're just going around and round and round and round until eventually one of the kids flies out. Now, if you've ever been in a relationship that's been caught in a negative cycle like this, you know what happens. It goes round and round and round. You feel like there's no escape. And then eventually, people emotionally check out of their relationship. In marriages, this cycle often leads to divorce. And we know that in relationships, conflict is normal. It's inevitable. And in fact, conflict isn't even bad. Oftentimes, conflict is beneficial to a relationship. But listen to what it says here in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you can't stay in that state of frustration, bitterness, anger, disappointment forever. Eventually, the conflict needs to resolve itself. Now, this doesn't mean that you should rush to a quick resolution because sometimes our problems and our conflicts are big and they take hard work and time to fix. But unresolved conflict kills relationships. Here's the third thing I think Paul points out. I'm calling it toxic communication. In verses 29 and 31, it says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The word for uh, corrupting talk here is the word for rotten. Like when something, when a piece of food goes bad and it stinks, that's what's used here. Jesus uses a similar illustration in Luke chapter 6 where he talks about a good tree producing good fruit and a bad tree produces rotten fruit. And he says at the very end of that section in Luke chapter 6 verse 44, what you say flows from your heart. See, to Jesus, when we have a good heart, we say good things, but when we have brokenness and, and anger and malice stored up in our heart, those things come out. And, and here we're told in Ephesians chapter four that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander are corrupting and toxic and they, they rot things. Imagine if you found like a, a rotten potato at the bottom of a bag of potatoes. It would stink up the whole house and you'd wanna get rid of it. But what if you said, well, you know, the other ones in the bag are probably fine. So I'm just gonna you know, keep using those even though there's some rotten ones at the bottom. What's gonna happen is you're gonna have that smell and that stink from the rotten food in your dishes because you've held on to it. And the reality is that our toxic, our, our bad communication, our unhealthy, rotten communication, it, it negatively impacts everyone. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and uh, slander they need to be gone from our lives. The way you talk matters, and toxic communication kills relationships. Here's the fourth thing that he points out. It's comparison. 
Now, you've probably been on social media and seen something like relationship goals or squad goals, and I think our existence on social media has really enhanced our ability to look at other people and want what they have and to be jealous of what they have. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Sexual morality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The verse 5 says, Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Christians have a bad habit of reading verses like this and focusing on the sexual sins and ignoring the fact that we're called not to covet. But what does it mean to covet anyway? Well, this idea comes from the Ten Commandments. In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This word for covet, it doesn't focus on our external behaviors and actions, but instead it focuses on the internal mental activity behind the things we do, the motivation for why we do what we do. And it can be used in a good sense, and it is sometimes in the Bible, but it has a bad connotation in context where we want something that is off limits. This command is aimed at getting rid of the greedy desires for something that belongs to someone else, a desire that leads us to wanting to take it or attempting to take it. It's used in the story in the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis. When they saw the tree, they desired it. And when we look at other people's relationships or what other people have and we begin to say, you know, I, I'm not okay with what I have. I want what they have. That comparison it kills our relationships. So how do we get out of these cycles? And how do we get away from all these relationship killers? Well, Ephesians chapter four and five actually have some advice for us for how we can pursue healthy relationships. The first suggestion is that we practice kindness. In chapter four, verse 32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Don't make the mistake. Kindness is not weakness. In Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God for the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Now, choosing to be kind in situations like this, where someone's wronged you, hurt you, betrayed your trust, it can be really difficult, but it is worthwhile. It seems like one of two things is gonna happen if you return evil with kindness. One is that they're gonna realize that they were wrong in what they did, and they're gonna change their ways, or they're gonna continue doing what they were doing, but now they will be shown for exactly the type of person they are. A kind word or a kind action actually makes a difference. Kindness overpowers dishonesty, it mends unresolved conflict, and it's a superior communication strategy. And our model and motivation for kindness isn't Fred Rogers, it isn't our kind neighbor down the street, it's not even our grandma. Our model and our motivation for kindness is Jesus, who is forgiving. He gave us the gift of forgiveness, even we didn't deserve it. And I, I want you to know that you will never outkind Jesus. You will never be more forgiving than Jesus. So the first thing you can do to pursue healthy relationships is to practice kindness. 
The second thing is to practice sacrificial love. Chapter five, verse one says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Too often we enter into relationships asking, what's in it for me? What am I getting out of this relationship? This makes our relationships transactional and transactional relationships are doomed to remain shallow. They will never be life-giving. They will never enhance your life in the way that your relationships were intended to. But the way of Jesus is built on a foundation of self-sacrifice. If we're gonna be followers of Jesus, we have to learn to practice self-sacrifice in the way of Jesus. We should be asking ourselves, how can I serve in this situation? How can I meet someone else's needs? How can I be there for them when they really need me?